This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. So do you feel spirited wherever you are listening to the Star Worldwide Network presentation of The God Show? Uh, and, and by the way, I want to remind you that every one of our shows is so terrific, so sensational, I say that humbly, uh, that you may decide that you want to tell somebody else about it, and rather than them saying, oh, I missed it, well, no, you see, they come up new every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock, but then repeated perpetually and infinitely. Uh, So you can always recommend us, and we'll always be on. Today, we're on to find out something that I've always wanted to know, particularly from somebody who spent a great deal of time in the United Kingdom. And since we're coming off just simply off the remarkable experience of a thousands and thousands of people lining the streets of London, seeing that couple, you know what couple I'm talking about, with the latest royal wedding. The question that I've always wanted to know is, is as fascinating as that is, and as lovely as that couple and the previous couples have been in the past with all of those royal weddings, Reverend Grayson Carter, Associate Professor of Church History at the Fuller Theological Seminary here in Phoenix, having spent so much time in England, being a representative of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, can you tell me what on earth fascinates America so much with royal everything? Thank you, Pat. It's a great question, and it's a question that continues to... uh, really confront everyone who um, is interested in these things. It's an amazing combination of things. It's tradition, which the English do in such a great way. It's pomp and circumstances. It's the pageantry, the history, and the color, but also, in this case, combined with the spiritual traditions of Anglicanism. In St. George's Chapel, Windsor Windsor Castle, or previous weddings in, in either Westminster Abbey, for his brother or for his parents in St. Paul's Cathedral. The English do this in a remarkable way, and Anglicanism lies at the spiritual core of that Englishness. But there's no question about the fact they do these better than virtually anybody, and it's not the only monarchy on earth. It isn't as if they have an exclusive patent to this. There are a number of kings and queens and princes and princesses around. Nobody even knows they exist. Most of us in America don't know their names. But the UK, I mean, virtually ever since we dumped George, has still been a kind of mother country. Well, it has been. Although America has changed a great deal since the American Revolution, uh, we continue to look to Britain for... some of the origins of our cultural, our political, our intellectual life, and our spiritual life with the Church of England as well. So it's deeply embedded in who we are as Americans. And there is, you're absolutely right, there is no model like the British monarchy anywhere in the world. It's unique. It has been said, uh, mostly by politicians, but it's been said, the closest that we have come to a royal family in modern times, either the Kennedys or the Reagans. Hmm. 
And I, I will tell you that both of those presidents are prominently displayed on Irish homes. Mm. As, as you go into the typical Irish home, if the family has been around for a while, it's Kennedy, Reagan, and Jesus. Not necessarily in that order, but those are the pictures that you see. Absolutely right. And both of those presidents played into that very well. But the English monarchy is something quite different, or the British monarchy, I really should say, because that's different. The British monarchy has a unique role. It's not political, and it transcends these political um, divisions that we find in our country. So you see, for example, the, um, the last royal wedding uh, of, uh, of Edward's brother, uh, that took place in London, and there were over a million people who lined the streets of London for that. What draws people out to that? It's partly that the royal family plays a role in society unlike anything in America because it's not political. It transcends politics, and it, it represents continuity and tradition and stability, things that the English spirit values greatly. Now, there are folks right now who are listening in the U.K. saying, well, wait just a second, that's a yank. That's a Yank that's talking about us. Well, it's a Yank who spent a lot of time, however, uh, in your country. Please let everybody know about your long relationship with the UK, the Church of England, and all of the vestiges therein. Well, the most important thing I can say is I have an, an English wife who's, uh, who grew up in, in deeply embedded in the tradition. She comes from a long family of generals in the English army, and her father was a colonel. In the English Army traveled all over. She was born in Malaysia, or Malaya as it was then, uh, when her father was on deployment there. And I was, although a Californian by birth and upbringing, I was privileged to be able to study at Oxford and then to be ordained in the Church of England. And after serving what's called my title in a parish in the Church of England, I came back to Oxford, taught in the theology faculty, and was a college chaplain in one of the colleges there. Uh, so I've had I think 14 years of my life living in the UK and much of that, most of that in Oxford. And it's been a tremendous privilege and a great opportunity to, for, particularly for a Yank, to be dropped in at the deep end and to learn British culture. What a tribute to you, though, that you were accepted academically uh, into the environs of the faculty of Oxford. I think I caught them at a good year when they were desperate for applicants or something. Well, this is The God Show, so let's talk about the Church of England, and, and let's talk about um, definitions. Sure. Church of England, is it the same as the Anglican Church? It's not. It's synonymous in a number of ways. Anglicanism derives out of or emerges out of the Church of England. But the Church of England really is a product of the English Reformation of the 16th century. There's been a church in England that goes back possibly as early as the first or second centuries. We don't really know. But the Church of England, as we think of it today, is a product of the English Reformation. Now, was that original church the Roman church? Well, yes and no. Um, probably was. It prob Christianity probably first reached uh, the shores of Great Britain by an English soldier or maybe a diplomat, a Roman, sorry, Roman soldier diplomat, maybe in the first century. Uh, we certainly know that by the third century there were um, representatives of the Western Latin or Roman Catholic Church there today, as we call it today. Um, but the organizational structure comes a little bit later. But there's also a Celtic church with a strong Celtic tradition that emerges from Ireland, then into Scotland, Wales, Cornwall, Breton in, in northern France, and so forth. And that tradition has intermingled with a Western Latin tradition to, to create a, a unique church that's really different than any other church in the world. So St. Patrick was involved in some of He certainly was. Patrick was English. 
But he, uh, after being enslaved in Ireland, escaped, as the story goes, returned to England, uh, was educated and, and created or, or developed a vision for going back to Ireland as a missionary, which he did. And, and although Christianity was already in Ireland, it was really Patrick who organized the church and really was re- successful in converting all of Ireland to, to Christianity. My Italian friends also would uh, be uh, of the feeling that um, I would be remiss if I didn't say something about the fact that Patrick's parents, I believe, were also Roman. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're certainly Roman Catholic, but I think English from the west of England, if I remember correctly. All I know is, is that they insist that pasta was regularly fed to him. Ah, right. And that that's one of the reasons for his success. <laughs> so the Church of England, the Anglican Church. Indeed. The Episcopalians. Yes. Aren't they cousins? Well, they are cousins and maybe even closer relations than that. Uh, the Church of England was, was very well established in the American colonies. But then with, they had a little problem with this thing called the American Revolution. The prayer book that they used, the 1662 prayer book, had prayers for the king and for the royal family. So after the American Revolution, that wouldn't do. And it was important for the Church of England in America, the newly formed American nation, to reinvent itself. So it did that as what was then called the Protestant Episcopal Church. And since then, it has been in close relations with the Church of England, but separate, one of the 39 separate provinces of the Anglican Communion. So Episcopalians, uh, members of the Church of England, members of the Anglican Church, they are close, but they're not the same church. True. The church of the, all of these churches, the 39 different provinces, are all independent. But they all have um, close historical links and theological links. And they all look to the Archbishop of Canterbury for a sense of leadership and for a sense of unity. Similar liturgies? Similar, but not exact. All of the provinces have their own liturgy, and that's developed in, in cultural sensitivity to their own unique situation. So in America, we have a, a prayer book that has reflected American taste, values, and language. New Zealand, the same thing with their unique culture. Now, I would be remiss again if I didn't suggest that there is also a close proximity to the Catholic Church. Indeed. Internationally or just in the UK or just in the Western Hemisphere? Well, to answer that, we've got to go back into history a little bit, because the English Reformation, there were different Reformations. There was, of course, Martin Luther and the German Reformation, the Reformation in Geneva with John Calvin, and so forth. The English Reformation was entirely different. It was the most complex, because it went back and forth and was, took a long time to work out. It was also the most conservative in the sense that it moved the least from its Roman Catholic cradle to uh, creating a Protestant church that is... Uh, more like Roman Catholicism than any other Catholic church. Sometimes been observed that on the, in terms of our liturgy and our outward practice, we're very close to the Catholic church. Now, by our, you mean? The Anglican church right. in general. Um, but in theology, we have Protestant doctrines. Now, when you're talking about, though, history, uh, see, I love this. I, mm-hmm. I love the origins of things. <laughs> and, and when you're talking about the origins of individual faiths and individual denominations. As you said, it can get very complex. So let's go back at least to Henry VIII Mm. and that part where Catholics generally say, we remained above the fray. Mm. Talk about what 
happened with Henry VIII, historically, and the Vatican, and what came from that? Well, those were difficult, complex times. Henry, as we all know, had a problem. And the problem was that he was unable to produce a male heir, a legitimate male heir. He had lots of mistresses and produced at least one illegitimate male heir. So the problem doesn't appear to be biological on his part. The problem seems to be with his wife, who is, as was he, a Roman Catholic. So Henry, Which wife? His, his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who was um, Spanish and both Roman Catholics. And Henry himself was a loyal son of the Catholic Church. He had been given the title a few years earlier, Defender of the Faith from the Pope, uh, because he defended the Catholic Church against the attacks of Martin Luther. But Henry was desperate to avoid the loss of, of, order, of rulership, I guess, of, of authority to his family, the Tudor family. He did not want England to descend back into the violent civil war, which had happened just a generation or so before, in which his family came to power. And if he didn't produce a male heir, he believed that that's probably what would happen. So Henry was desperate. So in his desperation, he tried to get Cardinal Wolsey, to, who was arguably the most influential diplomat in Europe at the time, to try to negotiate with the Pope. And the Pope was between the proverbial rock and hard place, could not grant Henry his wish. And so in the frustration of that, Henry determined that he would break with the Church of Rome. Now, his break was very, very conservative. Basically, it meant enactment of something called the Act of Supremacy, which meant the Pope was no longer supreme in the Church in England. Henry, or the Crown, would be supreme. And that was in 1533? 1534, I believe. Okay. This is not an exam, by the way. Well, dates I always like to have in front of me, but um, something like in the 1530s. And the result of that was that the English Church left the authority of the Pope and substituted the authority of the king. Therefore, Henry was able to manipulate the bishops and that into granting him an annulment of his first marriage to Catherine and to grant him the right to marry, um, to marry Anne Boleyn, which he did. And Anne Boleyn, as we all know, famously produced one child who was a daughter, not a son. Henry then grew tired of him, and then we go down the long list of going through his various wives and things. He eventually did produce, uh, with one of his subsequent wives, a son, and that allowed Henry to have a certain sense of peace, although his son was rather sickly. But through all of that, Mm. the Catholic Church still existed in England, uh, but but it was uh, far less powerful an entity. Well, we can't think of it in terms of, of the sort of pluralism, religious pluralism that we understand today. Um, Catholicism was, was very much under pressure and really more or less underground, particularly with Queen Elizabeth, who came in a little bit later. Uh, when Queen Elizabeth came in, it really was illegal to be a Roman Catholic or to pr- pr- participate in Roman Catholic services, at least. Uh, and so from that point on, Roman Catholicism was really prescribed by, by the English crown. Well, was that a matter of bigotry or a fear of war? Probably a matter of both. Uh, there certainly were very great fears. Under Elizabeth's times, for example, you had the Spanish launch the Great Armada, which was arguably the largest military force in, in recorded history, at least in the West. So there was very great military threat. The Pope had excommunicated Elizabeth and had um, decided that she should not be, uh, her, her subject should not obey her. And so there was a very great military threat to the English crown. 
later on, under Elizabeth's successor, James I, there was the famous gunpowder plot in which Catholics tried to blow up Parliament and almost succeeded. So there was a very real physical threat to the Protestant succession in England. And, and I'm just hearing voices from all over the world right now saying, wow, and I thought we were in tough times now. Yeah. Uh, it, there was an enormous amount of strife. There was. Much of it based on what religion Indeed. you grew up with and what religion you embraced. Yes, absolutely. So uh, that's one of the reasons why it is. I'm so delighted that we have invited Reverend Grayson Carter, Associate Professor of Church History, the Fuller Theological Seminary in Phoenix, with an enormous amount of experience in the UK, highest on the list, the fact that he was tasteful enough to marry a British woman. Uh, the church itself, though, uh, the, the Anglican church, did it evolve directly from the activities of Henry VIII? Because you'll pardon me, but historically and also from the standpoint of uh, plays and motion pictures, think of Henry VIII not as skilled a person as you've described, but mostly as a, um, a Bacchanalian womanizer. Uh, but it seems as if he was also a negotiator. Henry was a very great diplomat in his own right, a very fine scholar, um, very skilled at what he was doing, but, but had serious problems given the context in which he was trying to uh, navigate through troubled waters. So the Church of England had a difficult birth. It went from being Protestant, somewhat Roman Catholic, and then Protestant under Henry to a certain extent, a very conservative extent. Under his son, Edward, it became much more Protestant, very rapidly. But Edward was a sickly child, as I mentioned. He didn't live for very long. When he died after a short reign, his half-sister, Mary, came to the throne and tried to revert the country to Roman Catholicism, which she did, but not entirely successfully. By then, Protestantism had become more popular. It was, it was somewhat entrenched within people's minds. Boy, if I, was a, if I was even semi-religious in that period of time, how confused I might be every morning getting up. Possibly. Um, it was hard to keep track of who's on top with uh, all the political things. But I think English people in the know were... Um, pretty, pretty uh, attuned to the political winds. And so when there was a new monarch and a new religion brought back in, for example, with Mary, Roman Catholicism, um, the, Catholic, the, the priest had to revert back to practicing in the Catholic way. And they, most of them did so. And then she had a short reign, and when she died, she was succeeded by her half-sister, Elizabeth. And that's the most complicated of all. Because Which Elizabeth? Of, so Elizabeth I, Queen Elizabeth I. Mm -hmm. um, Elizabeth was by nature, a conservative person. And that goes within the English temperament. Uh, the English are lovers of tradition. Change is difficult. America, much less so. And so Elizabeth, the religious settlement under Queen Elizabeth, was a conservative one. She neither wanted to embrace the overt Protestantism then in favor in many parts of the European continent, but neither did she want to retain the Catholicism of her half-sister Mary. So the English church moved into a conservative Protestant position where it stayed more or less permanently since then, which is Anglicanism, the nature of Anglicanism, being a, a kind of middle way, a via media between, if you like, between Rome and Geneva, between Protestantism and Catholicism. And where do the pilgrims and the Puritans uh, work into this, this well, whole, if you'll pardon indeed. me, mishmash? 
Yeah. Well, during Elizabeth's reign, in her desire to create this kind of middle way Anglicanism, there were influences coming over from Europe, from Geneva, from the Netherlands, Low Countries, and so forth. And we're talking about generally what year? Well, we're talking about the second half of the 16th century here. And those influences wanted to move the church in England in a more Protestant direction. They are what we now call the English Puritans. And the English Puritans wanted to purify the English church of all of the stains, as they called it, of Roman Catholicism, including bishops. I mean, it wasn't beer that they protested. We now think of the Puritans as being puritanical. But they weren't really that puritanical in many ways. They liked their beer, but they disliked bishops. So they wanted to get rid of bishops and episcopacy and the Book of Common Prayer, vestments, and all of those things that the we might papacy? think about. Well, not, yes and no. They so had the an Pope influence. was not the enemy? Well, the Pope was the enemy, yeah, to them, certainly. So Elizabeth's reign, Elizabeth had a very efficient, very effective Archbishop of Canterbury who managed to hold the Puritans at bay. Then when she died, she only seemed to name her successor on her deathbed. She was succeeded by her cousin, James VI, King of Scotland, who had a Roman Catholic mother, Mary Queen of Scots, who Elizabeth executed, but who was raised in Presbyterian, John Knox-inspired Scotland, but who had been raised by his tutors to be an Anglican. So when he came to power, 1603, nobody knew what was going to happen to the religious scene in England. Well, James had the same religious temperament as his cousin, Elizabeth. So he perpetuated the so-called Elizabethan settlement, this middle way. And the Puritans found that they had lost their influence. So at that point, under James's reign, a number of them migrated to America, including the Puritans at Plymouth Rock, who were strict separatist Puritans, or the more moderate Puritans, if that's not an oxymoron, who came to Boston and the Massachusetts Bay Area. Then, of course, James was succeeded by Charles I. Sorry, none of this is easy to explain. James was succeeded by Charles I. Charles, unfortunately, lacked all of his father's diplomatic skills, especially when religion. He tried to move the church in England to a more Catholic position, a kind of Anglo-Catholic position. Great resistance against this. England ends up, there were very good political as well as religious reasons for this. England gets embroiled in a civil war, a second civil war, if you like. The end of that, both Archbishop Laud, Archbishop of Canterbury, and King Charles I are executed. And England goes into the so-called Commonwealth, during which the Church of England continues to exist, but not as an Episcopal form of church. It becomes more of a Puritan church in some ways. But that only lasts until Cromwell's death. And shortly after Cromwell's death, where there's no plan of succession that was effective, England reverts back to the monarchy. They invite Charles II to come over from France and to reestablish the monarchy and to reestablish the Anglican Church in England. That all took place in 1660. And if you think that there were some dramatic responses to changes then, have you heard about some of the folks who were saying, wait a minute, you can't marry Meghan. She's been divorced. Indeed. And there are strong, serious barriers to that. Well, at least until now. Talk about those changes. Well, that's fast-forwarding. Well, we have to begin, I'm afraid, with a bit more history. If we go into the early 20th century, we have um, a young king on the throne who falls in love. He has lots of potential wives, lots of potential women that he could marry. 
But he falls in love with an American. Wallace. Wallace Simpson, who unfortunately has happened to be a divorcee. She has been married previously, and her husband was still alive. Well, now this presented not just spiritual, but constitutional problems for for England, because the Church of England is an established church, and the king or queen is the head of the Church of England. Now, this is a kind of honorary or titular role, but nevertheless, it's of great symbolic importance in England. Is it, by the way, is uh, the queen or king's uh, position with the Anglican Church only symbolic, and is the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, symbolic of the Pope of the Anglican Church? Well, the queen... The Queen's position is unique to the Church of England, not to the Anglican Communion, although in each of the 39 provinces she has a slightly different role or is regarded in a slightly different way. Uh, The um, Archbishop of Canterbury is not like the Pope in the sense that he has authority, he has influence. The Latin term primus inter palis as opposed to primus inter alis. He is first among equals within the Anglican Communion as opposed to uh, first overall. So going back to Mrs. Simpson, this is a very, very complex constitutional thing. It's not simply about the church being repressive and not liking divorced people. It had to do with constitutional issues that went to the heart of the monarchy and to the heart of the established church. But so serious, so serious that we're still talking about it in America and they're making movies about it. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was very serious in England at the time. Divided the country. People were sympathetic to the king. But the church and mostly the politicians and the so-called establishment wouldn't budge. And so the abdication took place. Fast forward a little bit more to um, the 1950s and 60s, and we have the queen's, the current queen's sister, Princess Margaret, falling in love with group Captain Townsend, who also happened to be divorced. And she then, under a great deal of pressure, was compelled to give him up because she couldn't marry him and remain a royal princess. So we have. So she would have had to have given up her title, indeed, even and privileges, the, even though she wasn't the queen. That's right. Uh, she was related to the queen. Well, she was in the line of succession. Very important place constitutionally. So not very long ago, as history as history goes, we have two remarkable instances of divorce preventing members of the royal family from marrying the woman of their choice. Was Edward's abdication, by the way, the first? in the history of the UK? As far as I know, yes. Wow. wow. Yeah, remarkable event. But I mean, I, I can envision pictures that I've seen historically of Edward and Wallace Simpson, and there are probably members of the royal family and also people who have assumed the throne that I would not necessarily recognize. Instantly. Yes, that's right, but we certainly recognize both of them. Wow. Yeah, very big people. So we can fast forward a little more to... Um, Prince Charles, Queen Elizabeth's eldest son. Prince Charles, as we all know, married Diana Spencer. That marriage did not work out, and so they were divorced. Uh, Prince Charles, after her death, then decided he wanted to marry. It might have been, now when I think of it, I should check the dates, but it might have been while she was still alive, but wanted to marry a woman that he had been friends with and perhaps involved with. The famed Camilla. The famed Camilla. Um, He wanted to marry her. And so when they married, they were eventually granted permission. Now, this was a remarkable change. But when they married, they married quietly. And there was no big public ceremony 
like the um, present ones. And but he so, was able to retain his title. He certainly was. And that's a sign of how times have changed. Public attitudes have changed. And they've so changed much tremendously. So, so much so that in the recent ceremony that we've had yes. and that we all shared Indeed. across America and across what seemed to be the United Kingdom, literally yes. a kingdom that yes. spread further than the geography yes. of the UK. Yes. Um, pe- people, even in this country, said, well, well, wait a minute. Uh, was, she was divorced. Still yeah. thinking back historically Absolutely. about those times. Absolutely. It's a sign of how much British society, I think, has changed. The constitutional position is still perhaps tricky, and it's difficult to know if it had been Henry's older brother, um, whether the situation would have been different or not. Maybe first, not. first in line. First in line. And He's Harry, pe- Harry now, meanwhile, uh, he and Meghan, right. uh, did they have to seek permission from the church? Or was there a constitutional ruling made about their wedding? Well, there is a provision, in, and it's certainly more than a convention, that they had to seek permission of the queen any member of the royal family has to seek permission of the queen in order to get permission to marry. The queen certainly would have advised the prime minister and the Archbishop of Canterbury, and these things would have percolated around for a while before this was given the seal of approval. And I'm sure that happened with Harry and Meghan. In general, with the enthusiastic support of the population? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. I think we saw that on the day day of the wedding where there were, I mean, it wasn't London. It was outside London and Windsor. But still, there were crowds and there was a great television audience and people staying up all night to watch it. Oh, I think there was a great deal of public support. And before that, also, the support, uh, virtually the adoration of Diana. Indeed. A very different member of the family that was embraced on so many fronts, internationally, around the world. Yes, she was, for lots of different reasons. Complex figure, by all means, and history will probably never get to the bottom of Diana, like with other very great complex figures of the past. But yes, she had the adoration of the popular people, not only in in Britain, but all around the world. How else has the church and the monarchy changed in your lifetime? Well, one of the greatest changes has been, of course, the acceptance of women for ordination. That uh, That took place in different ways throughout the different parts of the Anglican Church. In the Church of England, it took place in the early 1990s. Women earlier than that were allowed, first of all, to become deacons, and later to become priests in the early 1990s. This was controversial because Anglicanism has different parties. We like to think of it having three different parties within one church. It has a broad church party, which would embrace sort of the liberal tradition. It has an evangelical party, which would embrace more of a conservative or an evangelical tradition, and an Anglo-Catholic party, which is very close to Catholicism in many ways. And Anglo-Catholics were opposed, deeply opposed to women, not on the grounds of gender, but on the grounds that this had not yet been approved by the Catholic Church and would become an impediment for reunion with Rome. And so there was a lot of controversy. But now women are accepted in the Church of England, Episcopal Church and most of the churches, all the churches virtually of Anglicanism as deacons. Many of the churches as priests and in a number of the churches and growing as bishops. That's been the biggest change. So do you think Pope Francis right now mm-hmm. is taking a look at you folks saying, let me find out what it is that we might be able to learn 
to move closer to the 22nd century? Well, possibly. I think he's got a lot of influences, and he's got a lot of uh, balls up in the air to try to juggle, but maybe. But is that one of the biggest barriers from the standpoint of, of dramatic change? Well, we've often talked in this program uh, about Vatican II uh, and how what seemed like overnight, at least in church time, Indeed. Uh, that Pope John XXIII and his influence changed so many of the things in the Mass, Indeed. the language of the church, all of those things. Ah, but all male clergy remained the same. Indeed, and celibate. Yes, uh, the, the Church of Rome is often referred to or the analogy of the Titanic. You can't turn the Titanic on a, on a dime, even though you see an iceberg just in front of you. The Roman Catholic Church is a very large, very old, very complex institution, and change comes slowly in difficult ways. Um, so the Pope, I'm sure, is always gauging that. I mean, he's had some initiatives to make some changes, and he's had to pull back from some of those because of conservative pushback, but um, some changes he's been able to make. I, think, I personally think it's probably inevitable but I could be very wrong. I speak only as a, as a humble Protestant in this way. I think we will see one day the Catholic priesthood open to more married men. I mean, there are a lot of married men today in it, Anglican converts, for example, who are married. There's a number of those around. Um, but we will now see, I think at some point, men who are already married be eligible to be, to be accepted for ordination. But I could be wrong on that. Again, I speak as an, as an outsider and with with some sense of humility. Well, I'm an outsider, but I was raised in the church. Ah. It's just that the church considers me an outsider because they don't necessarily want to be associated with me. Uh, I mean, it's a public relations thing with them. Uh, no, but as a longtime Roman Catholic, as, as, as an Irish Catholic, yeah. um, I, uh, I, I wonder if it isn't also going to be a matter of pragmatism uh, rather than uh, looking at the scriptures mm. for leadership, just simply the fact we're running out of priests. Yeah. That's been the case for a long time in the Catholic Church, and it's been long predicted. Uh, it might, pragmatism might win out over idealism but, or ideology. I'm not sure. Um, we'll have to wait and see. Let's talk about the Anglican Church as you represented, Reverend Grayson Carter. I'm just, I am so delighted here because... Historically, you have put so many things into perspective for me, for our audience. But I'd like to know about the worship itself. Um, when you are talking about the, the closeness, at least, of some elements of the Anglican Church, the Roman Catholic Church, are vestments worn uh, during worship service? Indeed. Well, as I mentioned, the Anglican Church worldwide, including Episcopal Church in this country, Church of England, and so forth, typically has these three parties within it, or three traditions. Are they dramatically different from one another? Well, yes and no. I mean, if you look at the fringes of any of those, they would be quite a ways apart. But there are, most people are toward the, the kind of other edge of those. And so there are a lot more, many more similarities than differences. But if I walked in on Sunday? Sure. Depend upon which church you walked in. If you walked into an Anglo-Catholic church, you probably would find it more resembling a pre-Vatican II Roman Catholic service than you would a present-day Roman Catholic service. You would find probably the priest facing the table, facing east in the church, with his back to the congregation. You would find incense. You would find smells and bells, as we call it. Um, you would find vestments and that sort of thing. <laughs> if you went into an evangelical church, which might be charismatic, it might re be more similar to a modern-day Pentecostal church. 
So there's this tremendous breadth within Anglicanism. And it's the genius of Anglicanism, in my view, is that it's a church that consciously tries to hold together these different and rather disparate elements within Christianity. Not to say that, okay, if you're Catholic, we're going to push you out, or if you're evangelical, we're going to push you out. But no, we embrace all three of those traditions, the broad, the Anglo-Catholic, and the evangelical, as well as their worship styles. And if you philosophically uh, feel more comfortable with a particular kind of service, Indeed. there's a place for you. Absolutely. What about the art? If I find, uh, for example, in the Anglo-Catholic Church, is that similar? Are there stained glass windows? Are there statues? Well, there's certainly stained glass windows in most traditional Anglican churches. Uh, you will find statues in some Anglo-Catholic churches, like Roman Catholic. You also find icons representing the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Those have become very popular now, too. Really? Hmm. Uh, the art, too, broadly speaking, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Anglican music. I'd probably be in trouble with my wife as well. Um, the Anglican musical tradition is one of the great glories of it, and, and that goes back into the 16th century. And we have produced some of the most magnificent choral music, and that was on display with a beautiful voice choir uh, at Windsor Castle during the recent royal wedding. Stunning and inspiring, uh, the music, not only that came out of that service, but of so many services, in particular the weddings uh, that we see televised internationally. Did it surprise you, by the way, that so many American families got up at some ungodly, if you'll excuse that particular comparison, some ungodly hour of the morning uh, to be there live when they knew they could record it themselves mm -hmm. or it would be repeated? Well, I think it's an amazing thing. I'm not sure I can explain all the reasons for it, but lots of scholars have speculated on why we, as Americans, are somewhat obsessed with the English royal family. Uh, maybe it's trying to return to Camelot, as we talked about with the Kennedy family, or return to something or to grab something that we don't have within our own cultural norms um, that somehow is, is represented in the English monarchy. There's something there that really draws American and, uh, Americans and attracts them something maybe missing in our own culture. But it, the, the draw, the attraction is real and powerful. If on a given Sunday morning I did walk into an Anglican church and it happened to be an Anglo-Catholic church, right. uh, would I recognize elements of the Mass? You, you would certainly recognize the, the elements. It would be so similar that you'd have a hard time. If it were an Anglo-Catholic church, you'd probably have a hard time um, seeing the differences in many places. Um, it probably would be more formal than many Roman Catholic churches, more liturgical. Uh, many Roman Catholic churches, particularly in the western part of America, have become very informal in, in, their, in their liturgical life. Um, and the Anglo-Catholic churches tend to be much more formal, holding up that tradition. So, but you'd certainly see very many similarities and feel right at home. Having, the, the words, the, almost identical in the liturgy. Having been a student of this part of Christendom, uh, for most of your academic life and having taught at Oxford. Uh, Reverend Grayson Carter, here on The God Show, uh, I would like to know about that other change, that change that would be more dramatic even uh, than uh, members of the clergy uh, being open to all, regardless of gender, regardless of marital status, even more dramatic than that would be the existence of one Christian church mm. that is made up of those members that are still relatively close from uh, the Anglican Church, the Episcopalians, uh, 
the Church of England and Roman Catholicism. Uh, could even somebody that is as much a poster boy as, say, as uh, Pope Francis, uh, could he even discuss this? Absolutely, and there certainly are discussions that take place at a high level. And How high? Oh, all the way to the top. There's certainly ecumenical discussions that the Pope and people very, very close to him in the magisterium are involved in. There are official and unofficial ones, and sometimes the unofficial discussions are where the action really is. Uh, and there's also a lot of organic things happening on the ground. When I was, uh, my first, what we call title in the Church of England as a curate, we had a provision in, in that particular town that the Protestant churches, the Anglican churches, and the Roman Catholic churches, we agreed that we would do nothing separate that we could do together. And we did. So we had, obviously, our, our celebration of the Eucharist or the Mass, we had to have separate because that's official church polity, but we did almost everything else together. And it was a wonderful way of describing the kind of unity that's described in theory, but hardly we see in practice. And this is percolating up as well as things percolating down from the top. We're discussing all of this uh, probably directly as a result of the wedding because it then began to stimulate even more talk. It began to talk, it began to stimulate talk about the church buildings themselves. Mm. Uh, the discussion of the remarkable difference in the, the wedding ceremony, the sermon, uh, some of the music, uh, and the, the changes that have taken place when change still is almost tortoise-like when it comes to almost every church, at least in the world of Christianity. Uh, we're talking on the Health Star Worldwide Network, uh, a part of the Star Worldwide Network's broadcasting and we're here with the god show all the time and a brand new show every sunday morning beginning at eight o'clock and then repeated for the rest of your natural life um, reverend grayson carter when it comes to those kinds of changes though um, i can't even envision what it would take to create one single unity considering the fact that there is as much enmity as there is love within the scope of churches, even as close as ours are? Well, I think it will happen in, in increments. It will happen over time. In our lifetimes? I don't think in our lifetime, but I think it will certainly happen. I think we'll st continue to see changes. and We'll continue to see steps bringing churches together, but it will happen incrementally. But wasn't it a remarkable display at the royal wedding to see the American church represented in the sermon, in the music, in so many elements of that, bringing together the Anglican, English Anglican tradition? It's just a small expression of that. So I am hopeful. And it didn't bring down the empire. It didn't, no. Everything survived, amazingly. By the way, from the standpoint of dramatic change, in my lifetime, I don't think that I have been aware, including... Vatican II, of one single element more dramatic than the Irish vote on abortion. Indeed. Respond to that. Well, I, it's complicated, and I'm not an expert, but I think it, in part it reflects the, the decline of influence of the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland, which if you go back a generation or two was not quite absolute but pretty close to it. And I think that's been influenced by the tragic scandal of, of the clergy covering over uh, the um, 
children, the abuse of children in, in Ireland and the Catholic Church there. And the Catholic Church has lost a lot of credibility in Ireland. So in Irish society has changed. I mean, Ireland is part of the EU, and it's a very modern country in many ways, and it's modernized rapidly, um, not just in Dublin, but throughout many parts of it. And this is a reflection of that change. Since you brought it up, I really would like to pursue, at least for a couple of moments, uh, the, the troubling reality that there was more scandal involved with Roman Catholic priests than in other churches, even though pedophilia uh, was uncovered, yeah. investigated, and there was scandal in churches around the world, yeah. uh, and not just Christian churches. But was it at least as far as you as an academic in this field, I know you must have discussed it, was it exclusively as a result of the ruling of celibacy? Very difficult question to answer. It's a question that's often asked. I think it probably lies deeper in the DNA. I think maybe the, the celibacy impacts that and plays a role in it, but I think it's deeper in the DNA of the Roman Catholic Church and of other churches that have been affected, including the Anglican Church in some places. I don't understand why. I think part of it, it's not just celibacy, but part of it is that there has been, as in many American institutions, for example, there has been the idea that when something, somebody does something wrong, the reaction to the, of the institution is to protect the institution, as opposed to get at the truth and to protect the victims which is, of course, the most important thing to do. Um, this is part, another ex expression of the DNA of, of an institution that has gone wrong. And it's not just the Roman Catholic Church. It's in many Protestant churches as well. So I think that's another expression of it. What actually implanted the DNA is difficult to pinpoint. I think there's probably many streams flowing into, into that point. But as an example, what we've said to the point of redundancy over and over and over again, not just within religion, but also most particularly in addition in politics. Well, the, the entertainment industry as well. And, and in most all recently, of those things. Yeah. The cover-up yeah. is a great sin in itself. Yeah, and the institutional, if you like, conspiracy, it's too strong a word, but the institutional reaction, almost an impulse to protect their own as opposed to, I'm sorry, we need to protect the victims. Um, seems to be widely spread throughout institutions, and that goes to the heart of the problem. And we find that in religion as well as many other walks of life, and it's just tragic. Religion ought to set a much better example. Are you optimistic that we're headed toward a greater example? Well, I think so, and it's tragic that it's had to happen on the backs of so many victims. I mean, in, in Particularly the, children. Just tragic, particularly children, but, but women as well and, and other victims. So I think we will. I think we are... Um, certainly heading in the right direction. But I think it's, it's a perennial problem that exists in our society. It's never going to be entirely eradicated. But I think we can certainly make steps to protect victims, to prohibit institutional cover-ups, um, or at least to try to uh, prevent those from taking place, and to teach institutions about what the priorities must be when these things come about. Moving that shadowy subject into another area and perhaps another show sometime, I would like to ask you something uh, much lighter, and that is on a, personal, uh, on a personal note of preference, what do you miss about living in the UK? Oh, the pubs, the public houses. 
goodness me. <laughs> Explain to folks who have never visited that they're not just bars. They're not bars. They're not bars at all, really, although they do have that element to them. You go there to get an alcoholic drink. But it's much more than that. A public house is a house that is open to the public. It's not a bar. It's not a store. It's not a shop. It's a house. And so it's just like someone's private house that they get a license from the government, local government, and they can serve drinks. And so they open certain times of the day, and you go into this person's at first, it was their person's front room, their parlor, small little place in order to have a drink. But it's more than that. It's community. You go there to meet your neighbors. And this was particularly popular, popular when people's houses were small and they were very crowded during the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution and the Victorian times and Edwardian times. People had small, crowded houses. And so the men, I'm sorry to, to say that, it was mostly the men who would go down to the pubs for a bit of male company to drink in the evenings um, or after work. And that eventually has evolved into much more of a, a social thing, welcoming men and women. And it's a place to go and to have community. Um, a little bit like what Starbucks originally tried to create with Starbucks coffee houses here in America, a place where you could go and have community, uh, not a place where you just go and get a drink. That's almost incidental, although not unimportant. But that's, I would say, what I miss the most. Well, in fact, it's so important that, at least in Ireland, it's an absolute tradition. It's a ritual how the Guinness is poured Indeed. into the pint. Absolutely. You have to do it right. And pulling a pint, my sister-in-law worked in a pub for a while. Pulling a pint is an art form. And if it's not done correctly, and if it's not done in the right glass, you're in trouble. And that is part of those traditional things that you were talking about earlier. And, and the fact that uh, the UK in total, uh, th- that is Ireland and Scotland and Wales and England, uh, they all, while there are dramatic differences culturally, they all do seem to hold on to the, uh, the reverence for tradition. Indeed. Why? Well, they're old countries. They're not new countries. America's a new country, and American frontier was always pushing out west into the new. That's, that's true until fairly recently in our society. We're also probably more influenced by Enlightenment ideas of progress in America and the celebration of what we call progress. So this old history, these old traditions are very important. And so in America, when we think of a decision that needs to be made, we might think, What's the best way to make that decision? What might bring the most happiness to the most people or what's most effective? Where in England, they might say, well, how have we done this in the past? That would at least be an important consideration. How have we done this in the past and has it worked? And are historians, um, are historians themselves uh, more highly respected there than here? I would say without a doubt. I think there are so many very fine professional and amateur historians in England that it's, it's much more of a way of life. And so there's armies of historians there compared to America, at least so it seems. And they're all interested in various aspects of their own countries, their own cultural history. Which, and their own families. And their own family's history. Family record, uh, you go to record offices, local county record offices, they're often crammed with people doing family history. Remarkable. And in Ireland, every other block, there is a business that will invite you in so that you can find out about your family, wherever you're from. It doesn't matter. You can be Nigerian. 
Wow. And somewhere there is a coat of arms for you. Terrific. Involving Ireland. There you go. Yeah. By the way, on that subject, before we run out of time here, it has been such a delight uh, to, to visit with you, Reverend Carter. Um, do you see a time when the Republic of Ireland uh, is a country without a northern division? You asked very controversial questions. Actually, the question... <laughs> was very easy for you to ask and was not provocative at all. Your answer, oh however, may be. Goodness me. Well, but I would, like to, I would like to know from you because well, on the you have one, strong on, opinions. Well, as an Anglican, I'd say on the one hand, but then on the other hand, um, give you two, two different answers. Equivocation. Well, it's a what very, it's a very complicated question. I suspect, as I think a lot of people do, as population or demographics continue to change and as cultures change, and as people live longer with the peace accord that's currently in place and find that they like living with peace better than living with violence, I think there's a chance that this might become more permanent. And with that more permanent peace grows a greater sense of unity for all Irish people. So I think the border will probably dissolve at some point and the people of the North will vote to unite with the Republic someday. I can't imagine going back to the time of the Troubles again. No. Unthinkable. It was unthinkable while it was going on. It was. But People who were exactly alike. But Brexit poses a challenge to that because the border issue between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland is probably the most vexing or one of the two most vexing issues in the Brexit negotiations. Will Scotland succeed? I think the Scots are unlikely to succeed because... If they did, they would lose a great deal of revenue from Westminster. And I think the Scots are too canny to do that. I think that we should invite Reverend Grayson Carter back. We talk a little bit about faith and religion, but we could also get into politics and Brexit and all of those things because he's a very, very interesting man. As you're listening to The God Show, and I hope that'll be a continuing and regular habit of yours that you don't want to break. Because, you know, it's one of those things you could become addicted to and remain in good health on this, the Health Star Worldwide Network.